You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Our guest in episode 29 is paleoartist Emily Stepp, whose work might perhaps be characterized by its dichotomy between informed reconstruction and a fascination with pop culture in paleomedia. Niels and Mark will be speaking to her about her apparently inexhaustible output later. Before that, as hinted at in our last edition, and with the definite sanction of at least one Patreon supporter, we will be discussing the documentary series Life on Our Planet, produced by Amblin Television and Silverback Films, which first aired in late October 2023 and is still available to stream on Netflix. But first, uh, all of the present company will hopefully be attending uh, what I think might be regarded as the highlight of the tetrapod zoology uh, universe. That is, of course, TetsuCon. We certainly are. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm flying to London on Thursday next. So uh, we are recording this on Sunday. So I have three more days to finish this. <laughs> but I'm going to do it. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Thank you. I see you there. And yeah, we're, we're all going to be there. Uh, we're obviously all terrified about how much money we're going to spend at the event because pe- lots of people turn up with all these stalls and selling all these amazing things that you can't buy anywhere else. Most notably, of course, Jed Taylor and Rory Brennan are going to turn up with a big... Who listens to the podcast. So. Listen to the podcast. So I better get yeah. his name right. Are going to turn up with a big table full of Velociraptor models that look absolutely stunning. Um, oh, they look great, don't we they? we basically want all of them. So. Uh, yeah. They look amazing. They've got even meat temp. It's not fair. No, it's not, is it? But it looks like they might just no, sell out within the first five minutes of being offered, um, which wouldn't surprise me. Well, yeah, because Darren's going to buy them In the all. least. Well, you know, we, we should... Just someone kidnap Darren and put him in a cupboard for a while so we can actually get to those velociraptors. This this uh, podcast does not advocate locking anyone in cupboards or abduction. Nope. No. Very important. But we, we come with so many disclaimers now. Yeah. <laughs> I just keep saying weird, stupid things and then came to put disclaimers in for it. Sorry. But yeah, Tetsukon, I'm uh, I'm really excited about it, but there's a lot of parallel things happening this time around, isn't there? There are, and I'm not best pleased about that. Bigger is not necessarily better in some cases, and um I what I mean by that is because, yeah. because I I would prefer not to have to miss out on things. Yeah, especially on the Saturday with um Louise Ray doing the paleo art workshop and then a lot of discussion about marine reptiles happening at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it's an, embarrass- an embarrassment of riches, isn't it, really? Um, an embarrassment of riches. Not Well done, Darren. Not necessarily. But next time, please make it a full week. <laughs> well done, Darren. But next time, well, please don't have it in December when we're all broke. But anyway, you know, despite, um, despite whatever misgivings we may have, uh, whatever grumbles, we st- you know, still look yes. forward to it. And, um... So yeah, we're really looking forward <laughs> yes. to it, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great time. Um, are we all going to the zoo on Monday as well? I am, yes. Probably. It's always a nice visit there, apart from when it's really busy and swarming with kids. But most of the time, it's a nice visit. Well, it's going to be a Monday in December. Yeah, so. it won't be busy at all. Just it may only be all the Tetsu geeks walking around. I'm basically it. So yeah, we're doing that, and uh, we're also going going to the drinks reception on Friday when there will be a talk about extinction events which feels very apropos given what we're going to talk about <laughs> yes, it certainly does yes lots of extinctions in that and dynasties and dynasties lots of dynasties oh god are, are we going to start with the morgan freeman no. impressions already because we want more patreons not less <laughs> I, I mean morgan who, freeman supports us i mean who knows who knows that may actually be the draw you know <laughs> dynasty <laughs> sorry so what else have we been up to? I have been to the Lapworth Museum of Geology this month. Um, that was quite nice. Yeah, how was that? It's it's a nice little museum, uh, completely free to enter. It's relatively small, and there isn't a huge amount of dinosaur stuff, but then why would there be? Lots of trilobites, so lots of very nice trilobites and marine invertebrates. Uh, there is a, an interesting sauropod femur in there, which I wasn't expecting. And there's a cast of one of the big owls. It's too soon to say which one. But one of them and some other bits and but yeah lots of obviously english fossils and stuff more locally found as you might expect in a free museum at university but definitely worth checking out if you're not that far away from birmingham at any time then head down there 
yeah enjoyed it um we've also uh, finally been to the titanosaur exhibition at the nhm which has some really good merchandise by the way uh, i've got really good keyring and some nice tote bags you can, you can purchase uh and the exhibition itself is good too it's hard to come by good merchandise in museums these days that's true especially in the nhm a lot of it's rather sad has those awful CG dinosaurs on. That's not more foreshadowing. But no, <laughs> no, 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 these, these are not foreshadowing. The, the NHM CG dinosaurs are... <laughs> the, the, the NHM yeah. CG dinosaurs are the worst. But, uh, but yeah, the exhibition itself. Yeah, rather good. I really liked, I'm, I'm sure Nati will want to talk about this as well, the visual design of the whole thing, which the sort of sparse sort of sketchbook feel to all of the backdrops. And it worked better than somehow than if it were you know if it had a load of realistic trees all over the place because the fact that it was all sketched out it didn't detract then from the what was being displayed the specimens and although i'd seen the mount before at the amnh the one time i went there uh i hadn't seen any of the real material at least not that i could remember so it was really interesting and unexpected to see the real odd um only said argentina sorry had to go titan femur and falling <laughs> material in there and it's definitely worth going just for that. And the mount itself is obviously yeah. impressive too. And actually, it's also possible here to walk under and around the mount in a way that I wasn't able to previously and appreciate just how big it is. And yes, in my exactly. huge pelvis. Yes, and you're allowed to touch it as well, which is even better. Yeah, it's wonderful yeah. for the children. Yes. So <laughs> so that's at the uh, London NHM, is that's it? That's right, yes. It is until January, so you better hurry up if you want to see it. Well, uh, I might. You might well. You might, if you find time. Yeah. Mm. All right. And I am sure, as as always, we will report back with a Tetrapod Zoology Convention special episode. In short, we will be uh, reporting back on it and having something to say, as usual. Maybe we'll get to interview Nigel Marvin. We probably won't, though. I'm, <laughs> mate, I'm definitely going to try that. Well, of course. Okay, good are. luck. Well, <laughs> yeah. Of course you are. I hope you won't be, like, appear on stage and then be rushed out the back door like some prima donna. That would be unfortunate. He ain't that famous. Well, he's you know he's somewhat famous. I mean, he, where where do people know him from? From uh, from the Walking with Dinosaur specials and Shark Week. Yeah, just mucking around with CG prehistoric animals. Yeah, getting eaten by mosasaurs, or it's just heavily implied he's eaten by mosasaurs in one episode. Well, I don't I think remember. he was because he's coming to Tetsukon. Well, you know, he, he was eaten by them but escaped. Uh, he regurgitated oh, him yeah. and, or. He fought his way out, maybe. Action hero style. Well, we'll have to ask him. I, I hope we'll have the chance to ask him. Yeah, ask him about how he escaped those mosasaurs. Yeah. All right. So, all that said, I have something else to tell you. Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, we have a new uh, logo. If you are a regular visitor of the blog, you are probably already familiar with it. It's a lovely skeletal chasmosaur with... Uh, stylized lettering and some hearts so it's it's really nice it's really lovely and uh, you can buy this on a shirt or on a sticker you can uh, get your new and improved chasmosaurs merchandise at redbubble.com slash shop slash chasmosaurs or you can go to our blog and it'll be linked there or you can just google chasmosaurs merch or chasmosaurs redbubble whichever way you like and uh, for very reasonable rates you can buy this amazing New design. It's designed by David Orr, of course, and uh, it's very nice. And I think all three of us have a shirt now, don't we? We are yep. indeed. We will be representing Chasmosaurs uh, in visual terms, as well as by our mere presence. <laughs> I have to wear yes. the T-shirt then. Yes. Well, I'm definitely going to. Okay. But I've always worn my old shirt, so. Peer pressure. Peer pressure. Matching shirts. <laughs> it's it's so cheesy, but we have it's to do it. It's very cheesy, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, um, if you want to support us or if you want to show your appreciation and broadcast it to the world, go to our Redbubble shop and uh, buy this wonderful new merchandise. It's by David Orr and it's very, very nice. Fantastic. So shall we move on to our discussion in which case? And for this special, we are joined um, <laughs> in this episode by our friend Agatha, who has her own opinions uh, on the series to offer. Agatha has opinions. <laughs> As we all do. Too many of them sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Life on Our Planet, uh, produced by Amblin Television and Silverback Films, executive produced by Steven Spielberg, and narrated by God as played by Morgan Freeman. Aha. Uh -huh. I um I don't know 
where we ought to start. But um, I mean, given that there seems to be a kind of consensus with regard to perhaps the series' biggest flaw, um, the the presentation and the framing and the language used in uh, a large part of the script, um, maybe we should just, you know, get that out of the way quickly. It having already been mentioned by myself, of course, in, in our last episode. Yes. Um, I will start by saying that Marcia and I did attempt the drinking game oh, good lord where every time he said really dynasty dynasty well we didn't last very long no <laughs> you can't dynasty. say with dominance that's another good one <laughs> can't say i didn't warn you yeah. yes presentation wise well yeah some of the issues with the narration i mean morgan freeman morgan yeah he's got really gravelly he's starting to sound like iggy pop in places yeah but i i mean i like his voice okay that's that that was never the yeah, problem it's, it's yeah, just it's fine God, the man is a ham. He sounds so bombastic. <laughs> Every line sounds like it comes from a movie trailer. The whole thing sounds like its own trailer. But do you do you suppose that he was doing well, that on purpose? You know, Attenborough, he ain't with them. Oh, absolutely. He was definitely instructed to do that. But, you know, that's why you get Morgan Freeman, to get him to do that. Yeah, to speak gravelly and like, yeah, make everything seem epic. But also, I so think if, that's yeah. the entire intention. I think if anybody else had done it, it, it probably would have... Uh, been a greater flaw than it already is. I think with Morgan Freeman, you just about get away with it, whatever the the pitfalls of having such a script and and, and the language that's being employed there. I think if it had been done by anyone else, it probably yeah. would be worse. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked with David Attenborough, would it? Well, no, no. I mean, you wouldn't have written the same script for David Attenborough no, to read, no, though, would you? No, <laughs> certainly not. No, it, it doesn't work for a lovely old English guy, National Treasure, than in the same way as it does for Mr. Trailer Voice, Morgan Freeman himself, you know. But as I said, gravelier than ever. You know, who is also a national treasure. Yeah, he's also a national treasure, I'm sure. <laughs> but mainly the, I mean, the issues were, yeah, it was a bit overly bombastic. And also the way that evolution was framed in some cases as being this, it's framed far too often as a war or some kind of sports tournament between the different dynasties where yeah great big a sports tournament that's exactly right great yeah. big clades of animals were like one team you know like all of mammals are a team and the diaps well diapsids are a team <laughs> like this uh, it just yeah it just gets a bit silly and everything being framed as a war it's, not a team, as well. it's a dynasty dynasty and insert um you know slightly dubious sweeping generalizations about americans here but everything being framed as a war as well just got a bit hideous i found yeah. that combined with his gravelly voice just slightly distracting <laughs> Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, I think it's worth noting that that the the worst of this happened in the first episode because it's having to try Absolutely, to, yeah. to lay so much ground about what it's covering. This did improve um, later on in the later episodes, although you know, much of the same echoes do still occur. Um, it's also worth pointing out that yeah. um, that the episodes are not all written by one person, and I did notice a pattern where certain writers were better than others and i'll come back hmm. to this later as well okay are you going to name and shape no, or are you just going to no, leave, I'm it going there? leave it there but um okay there's a lot less of that kind of language used later on even though the themes do recur and um and the episodes do improve that's true actually if someone had stayed with only the first episode and been put off directly by what they saw there and heard there um then that's a shame because um that's a loss to to the series and to the viewer, because they um they wouldn't find out that there are some some real gems in this um in spite of uh, in spite of this. I think perhaps they could have done without the approach they took to the first episode and just gone straight in. So the first episode is just trying to outline yeah. evolution and the general grand sweep of the history of complex life, and it's a bit much. It's just too much. I think everyone knows basically what it's going to be about. So just get straight in and just say. But then maybe they're worried about opening with marine invertebrates and stuff. And they thought, oh, no, we can't sell this to people if we're just going to go into a load of bellum knights and <laughs> trilobites and things. So, we, oh, we're going to have to. Yeah, they, no. uh, they opened with the uh, terror birds and the smilodon. But, I, but then again, maybe they could have had a brief introduction. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's fair. Yeah, I think it's fair that they do have a kind of prologue episode um, outlining what the series is about. I think if they did just go straight in um, and open with uh, the, the the marine life, as you say, it might um, it might not be the the draw that they hoped it would. You could establish in a prologue of sorts what it's about, and just have a few sequences saying 
you know, three million years ago, this happened. And then four, 65 million years ago, this, and then, yes. and then go right back and then, then launch into it rather than having a whole episode dedicated to that. Basically. I mean, wow. you can just start very dramatically and cook people with the sexy animals. Hook them with the sexy ones. Yes. We yes. Like with saber tooths. Absolutely. All, sexy, all sexy, of your favorite charismatic megafauna. I mean, it it makes sense from from a structural as well as an appealing standpoint. I, I don't even mind the whole episode being given to that prologue, to that introduction. But it was just uh, just the script for that episode was almost inexcusable, really. Um, yeah, I found the first episode to be very tough going, and I was. thought, well, I hope the rest of the show isn't going to be like this. But you know, three episodes in, I was already going. Uh, actually, I'm beginning to enjoy this. No, me too. It does improve a great deal. Yeah. Especially yes. as we get more and more of the Monday animal footage. And here's something that is both a blessing and a curse because the footage that they have from the modern world is a lot of it's incredible footage and would stand up on its own without any of the CG prehistory stuff. It could, they could yes, just make a series exactly. out of that and it'd be, it'd be great. Um, but then it also has the CG stuff. And the trouble with that is the CG stuff some of it's very good and some of it less so so less convincing but i always found myself wanting to go back to the modern day animals it's like i'm oh, no, not the cg stuff again let's just let's just go back to the amazing modern day footage that you have because that, okay. that was very much my feeling too and it's it is really quite a shame isn't it because in many ways it almost feels like if this had just been a regular uh, nature documentary series of extant life. Yeah, but then we wouldn't be talking about it on this point. <laughs> we certainly wouldn't. Well, no, no, you got us there. But it just, but it, <laughs> but it did mean that that there is a sense of are some of the sequences acting as filler? Do you see what I mean? And and which whether the extant animal sequences or the uh, the animated uh, paleo life. Which of these are the fillers? <laughs> what 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 is what is this series trying to to concentrate on? Yeah. Yes, that is a very good question. I, I don't necessarily feel that I preferred one over the other. I was never like, oh, I wish they would go back to the frogs uh, instead of the the dinosaurs or the the early amniotes or, or whatever they were uh, focusing on mm. uh, at the moment. But the difference between the two types of segments was quite striking because once you put CG animals and real footage in the same episode, you are absolutely going to notice the difference. When the whole thing is exactly. one yeah. style of CG, you can kind of relax into it. And precisely because it was intercut with real footage, the CG animals were beginning to feel a bit less than real. Exactly so. Yeah. The stuff they were doing was beginning to feel scripted. And the way they were behaving was feeling a bit, Dare bit... I even say cliched? Yeah, it was a little bit There was bit a tropey. lot of dinosaurs standing opposite one another and going, Rah! Oh, yeah. Yeah, plus, you know what bothered me in one scene? Um, they had, I think, Scootosaurus, and it had camel noises. And that was distracting <laughs> to me. Yeah, yeah, the noises. Not because it sounded like a camel, but because it sounded a lot like the stock, yeah, the stock camel noises that they used for yeah, the individual yeah, yeah. doom for the zombies and imps. So, like, you yeah, had I these Scootosaurus well, yeah. going, and I, I just thought, oh, an imp's just been <laughs> shot with a shotgun. And it's like, oh, there's, there goes a zombie. Like, expect, expect to this MIDI movie by the background, like, do, 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 and then Doom Guy would come in. But anyway, now I'm, I'm off on a tangent here. But yeah, but the, the noises, there were a lot of stock sound effects, um, not just the camels, except, but others as well. Except mm -hmm. when there was a bald eagle. They played an actual <laughs> bald eagle noise over the bald eagle instead of the red tailed hawk. Hooray! That was <laughs> hey. It's very much in its favor. Although, so we said eagles, you reminded me of another problem with some of the script writing in it, in that they didn't name things. So, of course, with the extinct animals, they don't have common names. There's no problem there. With the modern day animals, um, Freeman will often just refer to an eagle or a lizard. But, and it's yeah. Like, what it's lizard? Yeah. And I, I completely. No. <laughs> what I, lizard? Well, here's the thing. I am with you, very much with you on that, because I do want to know what the animals are. But I think the purpose they were trying to. Uh, what they were trying for with that was because they keep making links between uh before they cut from the the animation of the prehistoric animals uh before intercutting those with that of the extant ones they often try to make a link between what they're saying in one segment 
and the other. And so I suppose their aim with not necessarily mentioning what the animals are is to make parallels between the animals in the different periods or or, or to make a point about the adaptations okay. that each group of animals is, you know, sure. is, is, is navigating yeah. with. And that's why they, they omit but... the names on purpose. But, yeah, but it's still annoying because mm. I still want to know what they are. Yeah, but so... still at least tell us what it is because there are going to be a large part of the audience who are interested in animals and want to know what eagle or what lizard that is. So, okay, to start with, say, this is a lizard and then... At least at some point, just say what lizard it is. They they did do that sometimes. It's just that there were occasions when they didn't, and it was frustrating. And of course, as Niels has pointed sometimes, out, they um, yes. to us yeah, before, yeah. they were very keen on letting you know the name of the sarcastic fringe head. The sarcastic the, fringe head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't not say that though. Absolutely can you? not. That's just too irresistible a name. Marcia was yeah. absolutely scratching her head at that. If I could add something about the CGI, I found the quality of it quite inconsistent. Um, mm. The close-ups, yes. uh, strangely, were, were quite good. Like the quality was really nice. The textures were really crisp. But a lot of the times when they zoomed out, you could see the animal in the landscape. It would stand out like a sore thumb. It would just look like it didn't belong there. Yes. And uh, the quality of the animations was not so great at some some point as well. Yeah. But the I landscape shots that... were gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the cinematography is beautiful. Yeah. But as you say, Agatha, I mean, some the the animation. Did did vary quite a lot, and and it's you know, to the point that it was noticeable actually when when it was yeah, better than like yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. It was definitely better in some sequences, especially mm. like I said, yes. the close-up ones. But everything could have done with being just slightly more dirty, dusty, which is something that prehistoric planet did very <laughs> yes. well. I thought. Yes, yes, absolutely. This is a big problem here. We've been spoiled. <laughs> this is this is the yeah. first time anybody has mentioned the p word so far prehistoric yeah. planet sorry of course that's the <laughs> elephant or sauropod in the room or or mammoth in this case i mean i i don't think we can um, avoid the the, yeah we have been we have been well spoiled haven't mm. we this show is still so much better than a lot of the other stuff out there i mean remember that stephen fry thing from oh, last year whenever it was um that was abysmal but this is obviously way way better than that and i think i think before in the pre prehistoric planet or PPP times, we would definitely be ranking this like highest among these sort of CG dino documentaries or, or prehistoric animal um, and, and other prehistoric would animals we? documentaries. I, I think, well, just think about it. We probably might rank it below walking with dinosaurs possibly, but I think it would still be in the sort of, it'd be higher up there, but because prehistoric planet exists and the creatures in that are so good and so well realized that, yeah, it does. And, it doesn't help that I thought the dinosaurs, okay, some of the, the Smilodon looked a bit ropey as well. Some of the dinosaurs looked a bit, mm, I wasn't really I was going to flag up the Smilodon as, well, th there were two, weren't there? Because the Smilodon that attacks the Glyptodons, yes. I like yeah. that one. Mm. But the ones that were attacking the terror birds, yeah, those were pretty ropey. And uh, it's weird that they were so inconsistent. Yeah, I guess inconsistency is the word here. Yes, I think so. I wasn't fond of the whole sequence with the Smilodon and the terror birds. I, I'm afraid to say that I didn't rate either of the animals uh, in that sequence. What really stuck out for me uh, was the depiction of the terror birds' feet, which you would have thought of all things you could get as close to being right as possible. Possible. There are plenty of extant ground-dwelling birds' feet that you could refer to, especially when you had a view of the soles of the feet. Um, if you go back, uh, this is stuck out so much to me, but I don't know whether you noticed it. But if you go back to look at that sequence, when you see the the terror birds lifting their feet, um, the soles just look like it ha they had been squashed in. Um, rather than having a, a generous uh, heel pad, which, you know, of all the things that are most noticeable about those features, that would have been it. That just felt uh, particularly jarring to me. On the other hand, there were little details on some things that I was quite surprised they got right and did really well. Like the hands of hadrosaurs seemed to be, seemed to have the sort of correct number of claws and everything. Like they had the big um, sort of combined claw if you remember that yeah it's, it's okay says the resident hadrosaurs I mean, the dinosaurs were the best. <laughs> yeah 
I mean, the, the, the T-Rex had really sunken eyes and everything, and it didn't look great. Um, but then again, Prehistoric Planet has just spoiled us, and the one in that looks so good. By comparison, yeah. This, I, I, think, mm. I think the show was at its best when it wasn't being Prehistoric Planet, when it was being its own thing. Yeah, plus it was really great to see um, a range of animals that we don't see very often, especially... I really no, appreciated the range of invertebrates true. that were shown early on. The this, yeah, um, ocean-going invertebrates, basically. Bedamites and trilobites and all that. I really enjoyed the trilobites. I really yes. enjoyed the um, the orthocones. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I hinted at it in the last episode that the the second episode with the with all the marine invertebrates um, did feel like, uh, if I'm not using the wrong um, uh, figurative idiom, it um, <laughs> did feel like like a breath of fresh air after the after the the, the heavy going first one with a with all its um, warring clans yeah yeah and dynasties i quite like the platyosaurus not the babies because the babies were quadrupedal for, oh, yes. for whatever reason but i thought well that's a pretty good platyosaurus there isn't it the adult one and there might be a reason for that like isn't there a massive spondylus juvenile or something that indicates it might have been quadrupedal and the adults were bipedal For some reason that, that they didn't just pull that out of their um out of thing that was <laughs> that's actually a specimen that the it's there is so there is a reason for that. I know there's a reason that they did that. Um, but yeah, the platyosaurus were good, and they were bipeds, and they look they look pretty good. Um, I, I, I yeah, obviously it's for some reason for some reason the ones that were bad stick more in my mind, but there were some good ones too. <laughs> like I said, I actually thought the hadrosaurs were okay. Again, not as good as the prehistoric planet ones. The I thought they, they were pretty they were reasonably good. I like to see the lystrosaurus. Yes. Good to see some uh, synapses yes, yes, right. representation. Yes. Although then you make me think of that dumb sequence where that um, what, what is it like a croc line orchestra or something comes out and oh, it's yeah. like it's, it's like it's, it's evolved overnight. So the Lystrosaurus <laughs> don't know what to do with it. It's like they're so stupid they just stand around because they don't know what it is and they get eaten. It's like oh, yeah, it's like, yes, it's, what? <laughs> it just beamed down from outer space. Yeah. Ooh. Now that you mention that, I almost felt that in a lot of the predation sequences um, of the prehistoric animals, it almost feels to me like the prey animals just gave up far too easily in almost every instance of it. That was another good thing about Prehistoric Planet, that the Amontosaur was kicking and thrashing. Yeah. Well, right, exactly. But but like you said, with the Lystrosaurus, just not, not having a clue what, what this great big animal predator thing was and just you know getting them so a big eaten. thing with big teeth were... coming towards you <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, but there were other sequences that were a little bit like that um i mean for example the the deinonychus that hunted down the the archonsaurus um i was i felt like the archonsaurus just kind of just gave up no, just regarding the um deinonychus the way they held their arms in front of them i think with the feathers it looked a little bit awkward it looked like they kind of Took a beast of the Mesozoic yeah. model and stuck its arms out, and that was kind of it. Looks like <laughs> that a was weird, wasn't it? Neutral pose. Yeah, that again, you see, Prehistoric yes. Planet did it so much better. Again, oh, yeah. it's like feathers can move; they don't have to be stuck out rigid like that the whole time. Um, but mm, yeah. anyway, sorry, it's not the next. And also the well, the mammoth calf in the um, in the last episode that's a come to the cave lions that that seemed to have just given itself up very quickly as well. And the rest of the herd, you know, having stood their ground um, valiantly beforehand, kind of just, you know, then just stood around and just, okay, well, that one's gone. <laughs> it kind of, but I don't, I don't know why this just it feels <laughs> jarring to me. I think um, I know why, because they showed footage of cheetahs hunting wildebeest mm. and the wildebeest were not taking it. But this is it, because in real life... Speaking no. of prey animals, I thought the sequence with the uh, Dodecurus and the Smilodon was quite good, and they didn't give up so easily. It's quite fun to no. watch, actually. That yeah. was a good one. Yeah, that's one. a bit yes. I really enjoyed. Being so futile at trying to eat a couple of them. That was a good one. It was also a sequence where I felt like, okay, I don't think I've seen this particular scenario before. No. Right. So it's something new. Yeah. Which is good. And, yeah, the, and uh, the CG was pretty good too. Good models on both accounts. Yeah. Uh, the Smilodon, mm -hmm. that Smilodon looked quite good to me. And the Glyptodons yes. looked yeah. great. I thought those were pretty good Glyptodons there. Yeah, I think they were beautiful, actually. My favorite of the prehistoric animal sequences might be, well, one of them perhaps, is um, is that of the Ancyonis, actually. Uh, I don't know why, but I actually found that sequence quite moving. 
when it took to the air uh, to escape the Sane Raptor. Yeah. Did it sprawl its hind limbs, though? I can't remember. Because it did. Yes. Uh, it sort of semi did. Sort of did. Mm. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't a complete. Mm. Sprawl. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't quite a roast chicken. But um, no, it wasn't the old roadkill um, that they had back in the no, day. You know, no. 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 You know, no. old roadkill microraptor reconstructions. It wasn't like that. Okay. Oh, thank you, Ernest. <laughs> but okay, having having been almost savage with our criticisms. Um, I, I do want to say some really uh, positive things about the series. Uh, we, but life on our planet is savage. Nature is well, savage, my dear. Most certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have already <laughs> mentioned a few of the things we did like. Um, but um, but I, I'm going to come back to, to the, the footage of extant animals. Those, I think, are some of the best that, um, that I've seen. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful. I mean, I love, for example, yeah. the, the, um, the strawberry poison dart frog um, carrying her young uh, to the safety and uh, water uh, of a bromeliad, for example. That was, that was beautiful. That was amazing. Wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd read that they do that, but I'd never seen well, one. Exactly. Well, that's it. And the, the same with... Um, the ants healing each other. Yes. The ants and their antibiotic saliva, which is just marvelous. Um, <laughs> that was fantastic. I had no that idea one. about that. That was amazing. No, no, neither did I. And that was that was really eye-opening. And even some of the sequences, like um, some already uh, repeatedly shown sequences, like Nile crocodiles attacking wildebeest. I mean, we've seen that in, in almost every uh, nature documentary before. But but even these ones felt fresh to me. Um, Especially spectacular. It really does. And and the slow motion is astonishing in what it reveals. And there's uh, uh, the capuchin monkeys yeah. using citronella as insect repellent. That was wonderful to see. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the snow leopard. The snow hunting leopard. Hunting the ebex and then both of them tumbling uh, over the cliff. Yeah. yeah. That was a really compelling sort of bit of narrative they threw in there, mm. which yes. I assume was what really happened i mean i know sometimes they make narratives out of different disparate bits of footage but um yeah. who knows what really happened who but, knows it, that did make me question it was very planet earth of them. yes it was i don't know yeah. i don't know if that even matters really it was amazing footage anyway so it was yeah yeah two of my favorite sequences were the lizard uh hunting flies and the uh, flies. frogs hunting dragonflies yes acrobatics thrown by the animals yeah the, they're both exactly great. yeah yeah, those were lovely to see. And sometimes the the frogs launching themselves into the air with a bit less than grace, <laughs> but that's just how nature works. That's just marvelous. Yeah, it was really it's wonderful. Great to watch. And again, again, the slow motion in in those sequences was just entirely revealing. Yeah. Sometimes slow mo can feel like a bit of a gimmick in footage, but that really yeah. enhanced it. I thought. Yes, I agree. And I, I used the word poignancy earlier uh, um, with regard to the, um, the snow leopard um, dying along with the ibex that it's been hunting. Um, there was a surprising uh, 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 dose of poignancy in, in quite a lot of the series, actually, uh, in spite of what we, we, we were complaining about. I mean, for example, you know, the, the, the all too important um, KPG extinction sequence. I really did find that quite genuinely distressing. Um, the the animation of the asteroid itself was really quite breathtaking, and not just because it's a spectacle of, of fire and an explosion, but in attempting to illustrate what something so cataclysmic might have looked like, and then all the events that uh, that dominoed in the aftermath of it, and and obviously the death of our beloved dinosaurs. Um, I really was quite yeah. emotionally involved um, during that. I can't say this without saying that Lorne Balfe's music, I think, is, is really wonderful. Yeah, I think the music was great. And I, I think it was of a piece with the rest of it, because you have Morgan Freeman doing the sort of bombastic narration. But I think the footage, as well as the music, kind of matches that. Mm. Yes, yes, it does. I, I do have to say that... that in in episode four, in um, when Morgan Freeman introduces, you know, when dinosaurs came up on the scene, and Morgan Freeman uh, starts to introduce them, the the way he intones those words, you know, you could scarcely have avoided comparison with the way John Hammond says, "Welcome to Jurassic Park." 
yeah, I think oh, that, that was... reminds me, they, <laughs> they put Life Found a Way in there. <laughs> that, they? exactly. They put it in there twice. Frequently, I think more than twice. I'm pretty sure. I should have had. I should have had Goldblum pop up for that. <laughs> like just to get Goldblum's a cameo, just for that one line. Yeah, and um, put his art in there as well. Like life just... art, uh, found a way. And with that, the you know that introduction of the dinosaurs with, with Morgan Freeman. You know, um, the the music just then, the horn blasts in in Lorne Balfe's score at that moment. Um, the the echoes of John Williams. I, I will admit I, I got goosebumps at that moment. <laughs> well, there you go. But, but the echo with John Williams really couldn't have been a coincidence there, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, I will admit I got goosebumps at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not too good for a bit of kitsch. <laughs> you love kitsch. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got me. But I, I do want to say this. I think the, the strongest thing of all is... Um, was episode eight, the last episode in the series. I think it felt to me like the strongest episode yes. of all. Um, it felt almost like in its last act, um, the series took a very sudden and surprising leap, um, which if you, know, if you hadn't stuck out with it that far, you would have missed that. You would have missed this prize that it, that it offered up at the end because everything seemed to me united in the final episode because the, the depiction of the animals felt strongest. This is when one of the, uh, we were saying earlier about how the animation of the prehistoric animals um, varied quite a lot, but they were, they were among the strongest in this one, maybe because Pleistocene mammals, um, you know, just, just offered themselves to, to being done right. And, um, and then of course, there is the, the, the premise yeah. of the whole episode with regard to humanity's rise and sprawl and where we're heading and and the way that it pulls no punches about the damage that we're yes. doing. And and this is where the script in this one um, by Sophie Lanfear, and I will mention uh, her in this case because th it, this is to her credit, the script in this episode really actually shines. There were lines like... Um, our story is written on the face of the earth, just as the sequence shows how much light pollution is being uh, created on earth. Um, you know, or, or there's, we're too successful for our own good and the planet. And again, this is where everything kind of just united together for the episode because the line and the way that Morgan Freeman delivers it was just on point. <laughs> and, and, and again, it's not just that we're doing yeah. any of these. You did well, though. Yeah. It's that we're doing all of them all at the same time, and we're doing it at meteoric speed. And then cue the asteroid sequence once more yes. just to hammer that hope. That was just masterly, I think. That was just beautifully done. Oh, yeah. I will admit I was very much dreading that episode because you knew that it was coming because... They were talking about, well, th this was the first mass extinction. This was the second. And you know they're working up to the sixth, right? Yeah. Well, and I was it. kind of dreading it. I was kind of thinking, okay, how are they going to handle it? Are they going to be really preachy about it? Are they going to be really ambiguous about it? But I think they handled it very deftly. Oh, it was beautiful. It was quite poetic, I would say. The fact that it says, yeah, there's going to be mass extinction, but life will carry on anyway. It's just that humanity won't. Yeah. Uh, well, We'll go. We'll take a lot of species with us. No, it wasn't as fat. It wasn't as fatalistic as that. He he did offer up some hope. Like, but we're the species that can understand this it. This is and it. That we, exactly. We can know how to stop. Yeah, it. we are the first species in the four billion year history of life to understand what is happening on Earth. Our intelligence has brought us this far, and it is the only thing that can save us. I mean, these are fantastic lines after what we've been through. <laughs> it was just a joy to hear them. And of course, there's the final, final scene, which I won't spoil too much, but there are giant flightless bats walking around. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> you heard it here first? Yeah. Penguin whales. Penguin whales. And then, of course, the uh, the man after man thing. No, so no, genetically no. Uh, modified yetis. No, <laughs> no one talks about that in polite society. I don't want nightmares again. No, thanks. So the whole point is, there, no, I'll go along and spoil it. No, no, but no, no man after man, not now and not ever. Sorry. Not even once. No, not even once. Oh, 
All right, for today's interview, we have with us the wonderful Emily Stepp. Emily, how are you? I'm really good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Mark, how are you? I'm also good. Somewhat good. Yeah, good to know. Um, Emily, you are an illustrator. Uh, You're in Washington State, is that right? Yes, I am right now. So, uh, Emily, we uh, like to set the stage. We always like to start with the same question. What got you into paleontology, love for dinosaurs and natural history, and, of course, the love of creating stuff? Well, so it goes all the way back to, like, when I was a baby, I'd say. Really? (laughs) And I got this little pack, this pack of, like, plastic, hollow, cheap dinosaur toys from the grocery store, and I played with them in the bathtub, and that was, like, I just remember always having them, and my dad still has the pink Triceratops. So that would be the very beginning. And then Jurassic Park came out when I was three. Jurassic Park is an all-encompassing, here's why I like dinosaurs. But yeah. also the uh, library... Uh, presumably you, you didn't see it at the time, though. No, probably. Well, maybe. I watched a lot of horror movies and stuff with my mom whenever I was very young. I, so I could have. I'm only a little bit older than you, and I watched it i did watch it in the cinema although i was barely old enough possibly not actually old enough um i mean it was a pg rating so i was accompanied by an adult and allowed to see it uh, but uh, i finally saw it i, didn't see it I saw you know obviously a re-release of it in the theater like two years ago and it was so good to see it on the big screen oh that's wonderful but seeing it whenever it first came out would have been nice yeah i always i mean i went earlier this year again and even though the sound was a bit um screwy in the cinema that i was in it's still excellent to see it again. Yeah, it's just you see so much more detail that way. Yeah, absolutely. Also, the library at my grade school they had a lot of old dinosaur books, and that's where I like started getting into uh, paleo art specifically. Yeah, because I didn't read the words really. I still I'm really terrible about reading. I'm just like looking at the illustrations, and I did that. Like we had a library time every week, and that's all I did was look at the dinosaur books, and then we started getting the dinosaur zoo books in and i was so excited because they were new and they were fresh and it was accurate for the time instead of like the 1950s ones that we had which i still was <laughs> excited about i was like these are dragons i love these so yes the, the artwork suddenly leapt up in well suddenly radically changed you went from the old sort of pre-renaissance stuff and then suddenly you had these i assume either greg paul or john civica likes at least rampaging all over your books and um I'm not, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if i know the books that you're talking about i probably should i think it's just like a special series of zoo books that were dinosaurs and i remember one of the the t-rex illustrations and it was just like the most realistic dinosaur i'd ever seen i was like these are animals these aren't like just dragons they aren't mythology they're real i was just so excited <laughs> i think yeah i think a lot of people around our age have had that similar um feeling growing up because obviously we were reading these older books and then suddenly much new material came on the scene and became available and i mean i've, I've said before about the Osborne book of dinosaurs you know the louise ray illustrations how suddenly seeing no, those and that was just seemed like such a yeah. radical departure i love his art I, I did see a piece of yours i think on deviant art which was almost like a homage to him with a yeah crazy perspective i've done a lot of art that's probably inspired by illustrations in I have it right here. A Field Guide to Dinosaurs, The Essential Handbook for Travelers in the Mesozoic. That's like my biggest art influence ever, I think. I'm sure he'd be delighted to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Did, did we do that one on the blog, uh, Mark? I don't know. I think we've done some of the art in it because it's appeared elsewhere, but I don't know if we've done that exact book. Yeah, I think most of the finished paintings are elsewhere, but then there's like these field guide sketches that like they look like they're done from life and they're like all behavioral sketches and things and they're really neat. He really shook things up back in this well, early 90s in particular. I sort of remember coming across this stuff. I mean, apart from Louis then and well, you mentioned those dinosaur zoo books. What, what other paleo artists or paleo art and yeah, okay, Jurassic Park. Like, that aside, what other paleo artists and paleo art were sort of the biggest influences on you or who you feel like you really draw upon? There's a specific book that is called Feathered Dinosaurs that I got in like 2000. And it was just crazy seeing all the feathered dinosaurs. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. <laughs> yeah. So is, is is that really what put you over the edge? The the feeling in the 90s seeing Louise Ray stuff like, uh, okay, these are real animals rather than fantasy creatures. And was the, the discovery that, you know, there were all these feathered dinosaurs, was that the thing that really pushed you over the edge towards thinking like, yes, this is what I want to do. 
I think so. Like, I think a lot of, like, I don't know. It was just like finding out Santa's real or something, you know, whenever it's like, yeah, birds are dinosaurs. And I was just like, oh my God, I love birds. <laughs> and then it's like, you know, you find out that dinosaurs didn't actually die out. Cause that was like the most bummer thing for me was like, well, they're all gone. I'll never see one. This sucks. And then you find out, well, birds are dinosaurs. So it was less depressing. So I think I can celebrate dinosaurs less sad now. <laughs> yeah. And the more you open yourself up to the fact that birds are dinosaurs, the more when you see a bird, you see the dinosaur in there, don't you? Yeah. With their behavior. I mean, I got, you know, like 20 dinosaurs out in my backyard right now. The chickens. Yeah. Yeah, my chickens, and then I have one turkey right now named Linda, and she's not as smart as the chickens, <laughs> but she's not stupid either. She, you know, you see that dinosaur logic in them. There's a new thing; they get scared of it. They try to fight squirrels. <laughs> Very dinosaurian out there. Wonderful. So let's talk about your art. We've been scrolling through your uh, your portfolio. It's huge. Yeah. You are extremely prolific. I draw a lot. So you, you must be doing a lot of drawing and illustrating uh, in your free time then? Yeah, pretty much every night. Every day it's drawing for clients. And then at night I'll get on the iPad and I'll draw my personal work. Some quite remarkable hobby stuff. I say that as if it's just, you know, nothing. But it's uh, not to be dismissive of it in the least. No, yeah. No. It's, it's also my hobby for sure. I mean, the one thing I wanted to ask about was, because obviously you've done an awful lot of work obviously as a professional illustrator have you done that much paleo world or paleo related stuff professionally or has it mostly been on the hobby side of things uh most of it's on the hobby side of things but i have gotten some commission work but they're like personal commissions a lot of that's dinosaur work but it's like video game mods or for somebody's expanded universe that they're eventually going to make into a book and i have been hired to do some books but they're like self-published books so you wouldn't find them in a store. You just find them on Amazon. But not that many yet. I, I just finished doing a comic, but I wouldn't call that professional paleo art either. That was, I think you'd call it paleo inspired. It's very Jurassic yeah. Park meets Spider-Man. And I see a lot of that sort of paleo inspired stuff among your work. One thing that really drew me in was the the stuff you do, uh, like where you compare, say, the, the baseline t-rex from jurassic park and then on one hand you make it more like an actual dinosaur and then on the other hand you make it more you know more monster like oh yeah and i was kind of impressed by that because it it does take a pretty good understanding and a pretty good intuition of comparative anatomy to pull that off well thank you yeah i um i don't have any formal training in anatomy so it's mostly just me exploring around and being like is this right i don't know so a lot of comparative anatomy where when I want to do paleo art that, you know, is better informed, I'll do skull studies of like lizards and birds and then with the flesh like put over the skull. So I'll have, you know, real life reference for those and then I can do the same thing with the dinosaur. But so with the DNA variants, it's a lot of that, like you're comparing and contrasting their designs and somebody's paleo art and muscle reconstructions and then on the other side of it is just going full monster. Yeah. I like the I like the buck T-Rex with added deer. Buck. <laughs> yeah, that was uh that was for the pun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it probably was. Complete with tiny cute antlers coming up the top. But in a similar vein, and Niels and I were talking about this earlier on, the illustrations where you've tried to draw a dinosaur from memory and then again with a reference are really interesting too especially because in some cases the one that you've drawn painted from memory somehow looks, it looks more like how Niels and I would have done it from memory. I mean, if we could draw half that well, but you know, or how we might imagine it. Yeah. Sometimes people tell me they're like, I like your memory version so much more. And I'm just like, but it's not the dinosaur really. It's just like, yes, that Jurassic park archetype that lives inside your mind is what I've drawn. Yeah. That's what's fascinating about it because it is, Apparently not what lives inside only your mind, but clearly those people's minds and also ours. Um, obviously, we're not saying, to be clear, that those memory versions are necessarily better. That's not the point here. What we're saying is, yeah. because of course they're not the real thing. What we're saying is that they 
that somehow they look more well they're familiar probably because they're drawing on tropes and artwork that we've seen that's stuck in our collective memory and that's i don't know that's really interesting and yet if you actually go and meticulously reference it somehow they end up looking quite different yeah sometimes they look way weirder and you're like i didn't know that triceratops looked like that it's the dichotomy that we've talked about before of the sort of the pop culture version of the dinosaur versus the actual one if you throw out all the pop culture preconceptions and just to start again from scratch and reference it properly then yeah it can end up looking quite different we get so used to particular archetypes i mean it was the giganotosaurus in particular and it's actually quite subtle there oh yeah where it looks a little bit more like a carcarodontosaurus in the memory version yeah or it just looks like a kind of how you might yeah. imagine a big theropod but then the reference one there are just little subtle differences all over the place um the even the hips and the way the arms are carried and things like that the little t- tiny tweaks I-, I thought it was really fascinating to see yeah i have a lot of fun with those <laughs> yeah but talking about those those archetypes and those uh those more monstrous versions of the dinosaurs you have a lot of fun with that as well uh you mentioned uh being a big horror fan earlier and that is definitely something that I see reflected in a yeah. lot of your pieces. Definitely big horror fan, big body horror fan, big fan of creature features, fan of just animals in general. And a lot of the time those are uh, specific elements from modern day animals that I'm filling the DNA gaps in with in those. Yeah. So sometimes they're just weird. And then other times, like if you just add a monitor lizard in, it looks so cool. Like they don't have to always be over the top. Sometimes it's just like, oh, yes, T-Rex with lizard looks neat. <laughs> I'm also looking a bit Charles Knight, like his original T-Rex illustration with the weird lizard head. If you, um... Oh, yeah. Actually, speaking of which, I saw possibly on your DeviantArt, it was a kind of a rough thing that you did of modern day looking or sort of modern looking in Montessors in a Charles Knight style. Yeah, I did a little homage study. I wanted to do a you know, just a master study. And I was like, well, what if I update them a little bit? Which I really enjoyed. I, mean, I wouldn't mind seeing more of that. I thought you did a really good job on that one. Yeah, I've done a few homages, but a lot of them have been like speed paint requests from other people. And they have like um, dinosaurs from certain book series. So they're not necessarily my attempt at updating the design. Yeah, I'd love to see you do a few more of those nights, you know, maybe Burian and just update them in those, in those ways. Because I think you did a really good job with that one. For something that was, you know, you said it was a quick master study. Um, I mean, yeah. would you consider doing any more of those, do you think? Um, yeah, referencing... probably at some point. I have so many different personal art series. It's like, well, I got to get back to this one or that one. <laughs> Something that we always have to ask would be about your preferred media, if you have preferred media, because obviously we have spoken with people who are pretty much entirely working in digital these days, uh, whereas... You don't seem to be, if I've got this correct, you still um, do work quite a bit in traditional media as well as digital. Are, are you gravitating towards one more than the other? or? Uh... Yeah, so a, a lot of my gallery is just digital, but it'll be it's replicating a traditional style. So I don't know. <laughs> I love to draw traditionally. It's just I got to set up a light and my cat wants to be on top of it. <laughs> I don't. It's been a little while since, but I did some traditional acrylic studies like quick not very heavily referenced dinosaur portraits they probably look like lewis spray work yeah i'd like to do more traditional stuff i really want to i don't know it'd be nice to have a series of dinosaurs that i could like shop around to galleries here but i need to do i need to actually paint them yeah yeah i suppose most people we've spoken to the the reasons they give for switching to predominantly working digital are just time and the fact you can undo stuff and yeah, the mess that physical media involves, as you said, having your cat sit on things, um, yeah, stuff getting in the way. So it's really understandable. You have to have more space for it. Like, you know, the iPad is tiny. You can take it everywhere. It's easy. Whenever you're working with paint, you know, I knock over my paint water. Or I accidentally drink it. <laughs> Are you all right? <laughs> yeah. If you survive the paint water. Yeah. Acrylics, uh, acrylics, non-toxic. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, good just plastic so uh emily we uh, we already mentioned you maybe having the ambition to do murals for museums in the neighborhood is that a place you would like to take your your paleo art stuff in the future where would you uh, where would you like to take this in the future would you like to ha- get more commissions would you like to do a book maybe um 
any any ambitions that you have? Yeah, I mean, I love books. I definitely would love to do, you know, a full book of paleo art and not necessarily be paleo inspired. I think it would be so cool. I have a little tiny, little tiny thing in the American Museum of Natural History, which was just licensed. It's like a little phytosaur sketch, but it'd be so cool to actually make something for a museum instead of have it be licensed. So it's like, you know, it's going in there and you can make it as good as possible, do as much research. I would love to do that. So yeah. If anyone from a museum is listening to this, you know, having to be preferably quite close to Washington State, then please contact Emily. She's you know who you there. are. Yeah, you know you are yeah. possibly out of all the five people who listen to this podcast, one of them must be. It's a short drive, you know, a short five-hour drive to Seattle. <laughs> yeah, only five hours. But yes, basically, please, please commission Emily to do some museum work. She's really, really wants to, very keen and um, very good artist. I'm sure the rates are very reasonable. Uh, yes, but but do pay her well regardless. Yeah, it's. Um... It's very interesting to me, uh, Emily, that you came back to dinosaurs, or rather that dinosaurs really started piquing your interest once you learned about feather dinosaurs. I feel that since the feather evolution, sort of a new brand of dinosaur enthusiast and a new brand of, of paleo artist has sort of arrived on the scene that didn't really exist before. And it's also something that came up when we spoke to people like Natalia Jagelska or Rebecca Groom the people who really got excited by the time they found out that dinosaurs can be feathered and cute and bird-like. That's very interesting to me. Yeah, I don't think it makes them, you know, less scary. That's There's a whole debate that it makes them less scary. I don't think that's true. I've been pecked by a giant turkey. They're scary. Birds can be scary. Absolutely. Um, but they don't need to be, you know, they're animals. They don't have to be scary. They don't have to be cute. They're just, it would have been really cool to see one alive, a non-avian dinosaur. And the feathers bridges the gap between the imagination where, you know, I can look at the chicken and I can kind of imagine a velociraptor. I think that kind of um, epiphany, if you like, has happened to quite a few people. I mean, I can certainly relate in that I was also into dinosaurs as a kid, presumably about the same time. Yeah. But yeah, obviously it was Jurassic Park and all that stuff and had sort of revelations when we were younger. And then I drifted away from it and then i suppose in about 2009 or 10 i too suddenly learned that also yeah a bit later than you perhaps mm -hmm. yeah mine was like uh, the year 2000 i think i realized yeah so a little bit later but pretty much the same realization sort of saw feathered dromaeosaurs online and thought wait a minute <laughs> what's going with this so I looked into it and suddenly immediately just made them interesting to me again really really interesting i was instantly intrigued and i think that's been the response for a lot of people and as neil said it spawns an awful lot of people who may have given up on paleontology, paleo arts, if it wasn't for that sort of revolution in the way the dinosaurs were depicted and conceived. Do you think it's fair to say, I mean, do you think that if those discoveries hadn't come, you know, if Sinoceropteryx wasn't around and it, that you might not necessarily be that interested in it, that we, we wouldn't have, the, you know, the um, 500,000 deviant art posts of yours? <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to say. I've went back to dinosaurs. I've left. I've been, went back again. I might have still went back to them because I what bridged the gap for me after my excitement in the early 2000s to about 2008 was the feathered dinosaurs and the new discoveries and everything. But then I kind of quit. And what brought me back was nostalgic Jurassic Park stuff, you know, like 2015 and 16. And, you know, there's a little bit of feathered dinosaur hate at that moment, but not from me i was just like yeah dinosaurs no. all dinosaurs are cool not from anyone who and... counts believe me <laughs> yeah i feel like it subsided a bit though it definitely subsided yeah. it's just because it's become overwhelming now i think yeah at the time i was just like i can be a dinosaur in this game that's amazing <laughs> yeah that was that was the aisle wasn't it yeah with the aisle but i think with art the feathered dinosaurs has been pretty important yeah are, are there any modern uh paleo artists who are uh, active today who have really influenced you Brian Ng, I'd say, is a pretty big influence. Oh, yeah. Now that you mention for, it, I can definitely see it. Yeah. For speculation, and it's like, never be afraid to do something weird. And even my stuff, I think, isn't weird enough a lot of the time. And RJ Palmer, because, I don't know, he just renders so well. Yeah. I can see why yeah. you, you would definitely be a big RJ Palmer fan <laughs> with all of the, uh, the character studies and so on. Yeah, but 
he, he's in a bit of a league of his own, isn't he? Although I don't think he's ever depicted um, a decapitated Gallimimus carrying its own head. That's... You know, nope. it, it's the kind of thing he would do, though. <laughs> really? Maybe. Well, maybe. 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 Give, give maybe. yourself some credit here. You, uh, yeah. you do a lot of creative stuff. I love that infected looking one too, by the way, with sort of blood spurting out everywhere from its neck. It's just so... Oh, yeah. Shin Gallimimus, I call it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Shin the, Gallimimus. The, the, the googly <laughs> eye and everything. It's so that's so horrific. <laughs> yeah, so, sometimes I put kaiju in with the dinosaurs. Like, this is fine. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's really fun. And I think it shows that there is a lot more terrain to explore when it comes to using the inspiration from paleontology, not necessarily to make technically uh, accurate paleo art, but to make really fun art that is maybe a bit more horror or maybe a bit more fantasy. I think there's a lot of potential there, and I think you, are, you show that really well. Thank you. Emily, do you have anything uh, planned for the future? Anything we can expect? Well, I, I got all kinds of plans, but most of it's just keep going on my personal work. I really want to do some more paleo art that's traditional. And I'm always working for people, so eventually you'll see new work from me that are that's commissioned. But nothing at the moment. Like, I'm pretty open, like, if anyone has some museum work. <laughs> <laughs> Please give Emily museum work. Yes. All the, the hundreds of curators we have listening. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We attract so many you know, important scientists and museum curators. <laughs> to oh, our little, it's, it's a non-zero number. You never know. <laughs> okay, but in, just in case, again, Emily is available for commissions. Yes, yes, and uh, we'll be paying attention, and hopefully, our listeners will be paying attention too. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for this interview. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. I had a good time. Thanks very much. We uh, wish you the best for the future, and we hope you get a lot of commissions and <laughs> lovely opportunities to uh, show your creativity. <laughs> Thank you. So thanks again to uh, Emily Stepp. That was a very interesting interview. I think she uh, operates very much on that margin of science and popular culture that we're all about, really. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Agatha, you'll be coming to uh, TetsuCon as well? Of course. As usual? Yeah, I'll see you all there yeah. soon. How many of those have you been to? Because it'll be my third one in person. Only my third one. I only one. missed one because I was very ill. But I've been to all of them other than that, including the TetsuCon. Yes, the online um, ones. A, a bit of a TetsuCon veteran at this point. Now, T and I have been to all of them. Well, I, You've I been missed, to all of them. I think you're the only ones have. that have been to all of them. I missed one of the Zoom ones, but I've been to all of the in-person ones. I was only held back by serious disease. I I think Bob Nichols is the other person to have been to all of the uh, in-person ones. Yeah, it's only going to be my third one. But you keep coming back, even though it's <laughs> not terribly convenient for you to come from the Netherlands. You're still coming back. It must be worth uh, it. Well, uh, it's it's not that bad. I mean, no, you're not coming from the States or something, but still. So, some people are. Y yeah, they are. And you, you have to cross the sea. You know, it's not down the road for you, is it? Still serious effort. Yeah. It'll be good to see you again. Probably swim it at a, bit, at a pinch, but... <laughs> the next episode is going to be number 30. That's another milestone. We'll have to pick a book that's 30 and years old. it's going to be the last one of the year, too. Yeah, last one. And it'll be a TetsuCon special, which uh, seems to make it even more apt in, in every respect. And then next year, uh, the blog will have existed for 15 years. And I've been there for most of that time, plugging away with my... You have. Daft book reviews of variable quality. The the books or the reviews? Don't answer that. Both, really. <laughs> <laughs> Both. Yeah, we've been chugging along. I mean, who, who would have thought that there even is enough vintage dinosaur art to fill an entire blog for 15 years? Well, you know, I do struggle sometimes. But yeah. there's a rich seam of stuff still out there, you know, stuff published in the States that I don't have easy access to. Um, by the way, if you, want, yeah. if you want to send me scans, then they're very welcome to just saying. Yes, uh, same here. Uh, of course, there's a couple of really big ones that we have never done yet, right? Probably. <laughs> we'll get to them eventually. So I think that'll do for this week. Uh, that's episode 29 in the bag. Thank you again uh, to Emily Stepp for the interview. Uh, thank you to uh, Agatha for uh, joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Agatha. Yes. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. And uh, <laughs> hopefully you'll, uh, you'll join us again because it's been jolly good. It was fun. Thanks. <laughs>
So we'll all uh, meet in person at TetsuCon. Uh, hopefully, we'll meet some of you there too, dear listeners. And once again, thank you for listening. And we'll see listening. you next time. See you next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, toodle-pip. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Your hosts were Nati Himapan, Mark Vincent, and me, Niels Haasborg. You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon. Well done, Darren. Next time, please don't have it in December when we're all broke. And don't have it in the weekend of Sinterklaas. I'm missing Sinterklaas again with my family-in-law. You're going to miss the parade. You're going to miss the parades. <laughs> no, it's not about the parade. It's about the poems. The poems? Oh, boy. Sinterklaas no, don't poems. Ask, don't ask about the poems. Don't ask about don't the ask poems. Don't ask about the poems. What, what, what I'm going to... Out of all the Sinterklaas-related things to not ask about... We haven't got time for, time for this. <laughs> I've got time to go over Sinterklaas <laughs> poems. Love in, love in the time of Sinterklaas. <laughs>